0: prayed for you. Are you listening? That's why you're here today. Somebody prayed for you. We prayed for you. If it wasn't someone you know, I'll tell you I prayed for you, just like I prayed right now. And there's a reason why you're here, but I'm sure many of you can point to the people in your life that prayed for you. Bring them this Tuesday to the worship uh, recording. Bring them in two weeks of the Christmas service. Bring them to the life groups. Get out there and win souls during this time. Jesus is the reason for the season, amen? Amen. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to learn today and read about the the betrayal, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the burial. And so today, this is probably the most heartfelt, touching part of the Scriptures that we can ever read. And I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to take this for granted. So we're going to read through the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, and we're going to honor Him today. By thinking of it afresh and anew, and not just the pictures we've seen or the movies we've watched. May God touch our hearts with what he endured for us, how much he loved us. We started the book of Matthew at the beginning of 2019, and by God's grace now, we are finishing it. Next week will be the last chapter. Then we'll do a Christmas service, and at the end of the year, I'm going to preach on 2020 vision. You guys ready? I had to take advantage of it. I had to take advantage of it. I I saw all the preachers getting on it, and I said, I don't know about that. That's a little cheesy. But then I said, but I am cheesy. I always go cheesy on these things. So we're going to talk the last Sunday of the year, 2020 vision, getting focused on God. If you're ready in Matthew 27, somebody say, I'm ready. Amen. Amen. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Remember, it's going to be a Jew and Gentile affair. We're going to see both Jew and Gentile be responsible for Jesus. That's how all of humanity is broken down. Jews, the chosen people of God, everybody else Gentile. The Jews are about ready to have Jesus executed, so they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. There it is. The Jew and the Gentile together have sinned and are responsible for the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. And then all of us here, whether we are Jew or Gentile, we are all personal responsible because we have sinned. We have sinned. Verse 3 When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is this to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. I want you to see the bitter, sad end of Judas. Let us be honest with ourselves and see what happened here. And then relate it to our lives when we have betrayed Jesus. Now, As I shared with you before, my best explanation, I can't show it to you in scripture, so it is an opinion, but my best explanation to what Judas was doing was trying to force Jesus into being a conquering king and to fight the Romans and be the Messiah that he thought he should be. So notice this, Judas's problem in betrayal came from what he would have said was a good place. Here, Jesus, be the Messiah. Conquer them. No, I'm in peace. I don't want to conquer them that way. Come on, Jesus, we need you to. Our family's oppressed. Our children are oppressed. They're too mean to us. Fight them, Jesus. No, I won't do that. Okay, I'll betray him and then get him to slap him a bunch and let's see the God-man come out. That's what I think Judas was doing. When he notices that Jesus doesn't fight back even in the face of being punched and spit upon and being arrested and now being sentenced to death, he freaks out. I betrayed the Messiah. I just gave them this innocent man. What was I thinking? I have sinned. And he tries to give the money back. They say, we don't care. And then he hangs himself. Now let's apply this to our lives. Have we ever, out of good intentions, dated someone God didn't want us to and said, but God, you can turn this for good. And then when the situation didn't turn right, we killed ourselves spiritually. We turned our back on Jesus. We blamed it on him that it didn't work out the way we were supposed to. Have you ever tried to find a career, a path in your life that you wanted to force Jesus into, and when he did not follow the plan like you thought, you died in some way to God, you turned your back on him, you got angry with him. Can we relate to this in some way? Have we betrayed Jesus by doing our own thing and trying to get him to stamp on it, put his stamp on it, and when he did it, We got mad. Let's be honest. Now, the literal problem here is that Judas quit. Peter does the same thing. Peter wants to pull out a sword. He wants to go to battle for Jesus. But when he sees that Jesus is going to suffer, he himself gets scared and starts betraying, saying, I don't know him. We've already listened to that part of the story. So what do we see about Peter and Judas, both betrayers? But what's the difference? Peter did not quit and hang himself. The real lesson about suicide is it's a damnable sin. Now, I know there's a lot of mental illness that's being brought up these days. Mental illness does not equal suicide. Suicide is a choice, and most of the time, depression is a key to that, and depression is based in regret, grief, self-hatred. Self-hatred, uh, bitterness, these kinds of things are deceptions of the enemy, and you will not get a free pass on Judgment Day for murdering yourself. Even if you feel mentally ill, unsound, and safe, let us handcuff you to this pole until you don't want to kill yourself anymore. If you have this, the mindset to pull out, pull out a gun, pull out a set of handcuffs and handcuff yourself somewhere. Are you listening? Handcuff yourself to the refrigerator. And that's why I always tell people the mentally ill don't try to jump off the Looney Tunes Bridge. They go jump off the the Golden Gate Bridge because it's not a mental illness equaling insanity. It is still a choice. Even though you may be sick, you may not be normal or feeling normal in that sense, it is a choice that you make. And so don't make that choice. Make any other choice but that choice. Are you listening to me? Go to the hospital. Turn yourself in. Buy a set of handcuffs instead of a gun and handcuff yourself to the refrigerator. Do whatever you have to do that in your moments of despair you don't do what what Judas did because you don't settle your temporary problems with suicide. Suicide is a temporary demonic solution to your problem. And sadly, it's going to have an eternal consequence. So accept Christ, repent of your sins, find mental healing, and if you need help with that, we'll help you either with our pastoral counseling or professional counselors, and we'll even drive you to the hospital today and come and visit you. You wouldn't be the first. You're not going to be the last. We're here to help you. But Judas gives us a real lesson that suicide is damnable, and we know that those who do it are lost. Now, do I know everybody's state of mind when they die? Do I know everybody on Judgment Day and what's going to happen? No, maybe people repent. Maybe there's things I don't quite understand about the Scripture, but I wouldn't take the chance. Let's put it that way. Let's not be like Judas. Let's be like Jesus. Amen? So the chief priests pick up the coins that he threw out and say it's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it is blood money. Oh, now you all want to keep the law? Y'all weren't keeping the law when it came to Jesus. You were doing everything and anything, betraying people and all that, but now you're convicted. That shows you what religion will do to you. Religion will make a fool out of you. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took 30 pieces of silver to set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. If you notice there in the, the link, uh, in the notes rather, I have a link for you to study about the brilliance of Jeremiah, or excuse me, Matthew quoting Jeremiah here, even though a, lar- a large portion is Zechariah. So sometimes skeptics try to find this prophecy out of all of the prophecies about Jesus and say, this is the sketchiest one. This is the one where people tried to force it to be about Jesus. But I'm telling you, listen to the video. Dr. Michael Brown, a Jewish expert for that link there. I got it there. 30 minutes breaks this down. It's actually us that doesn't get it. But what is powerful is that 30 pieces of silver was used in that prophetic story, and then 30 pieces of silver is what Judas was uh, given to betray Jesus. There is a tie in there, and there's also a tie into the potter's field. This, to me, which starts off as more of a difficult one to understand, but this, to me, shows you how brilliant these Authors were and understanding the scriptures, and that and that means something because whenever you deal with cults like the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, th- these different cults, they always want to take prophecies and try to apply it to themselves because that's kind of how the Bible works. Is the Bible has prophecy, but they can never do it like the biblical authors. Even Islam tries to find things about Muhammad in the scriptures. It's quite funny actually how they try to do it, but they take it serious. But when you read the Bible, the authors are ahead of the game. They're the top of the class. These things that they're doing cannot be done just by mere man. It is literally God setting up things in advance. And you're going to see at least three of them today as we go on. Write these down if you're taking notes and you're interested in prophecy. This is one of the harder ones to understand, so I gave you the link. But if you just read Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Or Isaiah 53 to anybody and said, Who does that talk about? Nine times out of ten, they're gonna say Jesus. Those were written 600 to 800,000 maybe years before the time of Jesus. Psalm 22. Talks about gambling for his clothes. He's going to quote it here in a little bit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 69, how they offer him gall or this wine mixture to drink. And then Isaiah 53 and how he is led to slaughter. But let's keep going. Verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. This is Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. So at this moment... Now the Romans have a right to kill him. The Jews had a right to try to uh, get him killed because of blasphemy. And then now the Romans have the right due to sedition. He is a king that they have not appointed, and he's claiming to be a king over all kings. So this is now what he is going to be accused of. And you'll see that's going to be written over his his, uh, cross. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor, once again fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7. He did not open his mouth as a sheep before slaughter. He was silent. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival, talking about Passover, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. And Bar means son, Abbas, Abbas means father. So he was a son of a man named Father who actually bore the name Father. So when we look at Jesus there, Barabbas, we're known that we're, we get to understand that Jesus was a popular name. Jesus is actually the name Joshua. The reason why we don't say Joshua and worship Joshua, though it would be 100% appropriate, is because when you go from the Hebrew, Yahshua, to the Greek, as the New Testament is written, you go Jesus. then you go to Jesus. So when you go from Hebrew, Yeshua, Yahshua being translated into Greek is Yesus. then when you go into English, you get Jesus. But if you were to skip Greek and go directly from Hebrew, Yahshua, into English, you would say Joshua. So for those of you who might think that would be blasphemy to be worshiping a person named Joshua, that is his name. His name is Joshua. We pronounce it as Jesus because we translate from the Greek. Let that blow your mind a little bit. What language are we going to speak in the new kingdom? I don't know. Probably it's not going to be English, I can tell you that. Might be Hebrew. Might be Hebrew, so we'll be calling him Yeshua. Now, having said that, don't let anybody trick you into reading the Bible now thinking you have to speak a certain language, like as if it's mystical, and if you don't say the word Yeshua, his, his actual Hebrew word, you're not saved because Yesus sounds like Zeus. That's not true. It's just like mouse sounds like house, but that doesn't mean they're the same thing. Okay, don't follow conspiracies. How do we know it's okay to call him Jesus? How do we know? because all the original documents of the New Testament are Greek. Also, the Hebrew people translated their Hebrew scriptures into Greek before the time of Jesus. And guess what scriptures they, the disciples, were using? The Greek version known as the Septuagint. So it was never a thing that they got caught up on. Don't let anybody get you caught up on it. Like if you weren't you know, calling on the name of Yeshua, you weren't really saved because Jesus is an American word and there was no J back then. It was Yahshua, the Y sound, etc. Don't get caught up in that. The original documents of the New Testament used Jesus. So if it's okay to call him Jesus, you can call him Jesus, which Spanish comes more directly from Greek. You can also call him Jesus. Does everybody understand that? But I wanted you to notice the popularity of the name, because at this time, people were waiting for a deliverer. Joshua, that name given to the man Joshua in the Bible, as we see in the Old Testament, literally means Yahweh saves. At this time, they were looking for a deliverer. There were a lot of rebels at that time that were trying to bring up a rebellion against the Roman Empire. This was one of those well-known prisoners. So do you want Jesus, son of Abbas, or do you want Jesus, the Messiah? When the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus, the son of Abbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest. They had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now notice there are stories within stories. Every gospel is going to focus on different things. Matthew is the only one who talks about the behind the scenes with Pilate and his wife. John's going to focus on other things, etc. And so we learned from Matthew that they must have had an inside scoop to what was going on in the government at that time. How do we know that they could have that inside scoop? Do you kind of wonder? Like we watch Star Wars and we, we know we can watch all the different scenes because someone as an author is writing and making it up. But how would the Christians know what Pilate's wife said to him? The Christians are running scared and they're afraid. Why? Later on in the book of Acts, we see government officials getting saved. Isn't that something? That in the book of Acts, written by Luke, it corroborates the evidence of why we would know inside stories to the trial and even to Pilate's wife, where Matthew makes no mention of how he knows that information. And yet the book of Acts, what we would say unintentionally by the human author, but inspired by the divine author, lets us know at times officials in government are getting saved. Ah, probably a handmaiden or one of the leaders or one of the guards of the palace saw what was going on. They get saved during the time of Acts, and then they tell the story. While Pilate was about ready to make this decision, his wife said, I've had a dream. Don't mess with him. But verse 20, it says that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. How can we apply this to our lives? Jesus took our spot. Jesus took our spot. There's a wonderful uh, video you can find on Facebook. They usually put it up around you know Easter time about what it would have felt like to be Barabbas. And if we put ourselves in Barabbas' shoes, we all in some way are like Barabbas. We're the one that deserves to die. We're there on just cause. We have sinned. We deserve the penalty. And yet Jesus takes our place and lets the sinner go. Isn't that a beautiful story? You were the Barabbas. Jesus sets you free. And the Barabbas standing for all mankind. Let's keep going. Verse 24. Somebody say, I'm learning. Amen. Amen. That's why I wanted us to go through this story afresh and anew. It says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere... But that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Now do you understand why the punishment is going to come upon them in the destruction of Jerusalem? Now let me just say this, there is a difference between the Jewish people suffering punishment during the time of the destruction of their temple, 70 AD, which is going to be 40 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and he prophesied about it in Matthew 24. He said, this is what's going to happen to you guys because you're going to reject me and crucify me, he knows ahead of time. There is a difference between God punishing and then the devil afflicting the Jewish people during the Holocaust. Anti-Semitism bursts out of this passage right here. You have to know the difference if you want to have an intelligent discussion with an unintelligent person. Anti-Semites are unintelligent. Do you understand that? They hate the Jewish people and everybody in the Bible is a Jew. That doesn't work well, my friends. You're cutting the branch on what you're sitting on. But here's what they think to themselves. Because the Jewish people at this point kill the Son of God, they will now forever be cursed because the curse is upon them and their children. Do you at least understand their point? The Bible gives us evidence that God is going to punish the people. But does this mean the Jewish people are going to forever be lost cursed and that we ought to hate them. Well, let's just back up and understand how we're supposed to treat our enemies according to Jesus. Love your enemies. Even if the Jewish people were our enemies, do we hate our enemies? No. So right there, the outward expression of anti-Semitism is fully satanic. Even if they came in the category Jewish people now as a false religion like Islam. I still don't hate Muslims, even though I know they are of the devil and their religion was birthed by Satan. I say that because I love them. I want them to stop serving Satan, and I want all people to stop serving Satan. Okay, so I just say that in that way. But even if Judaism became that, We would still not hate them because I love Muslims. I love my Muslim neighbors. I learn their language. I study the Quran. I want them to be free just as Christ has set me free. I am no better or worse than them. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Their sin is a false religion. My sin was crime and doing drugs. Okay, but get this. Number one, we don't hate our enemies. We love them. But number two, do they become our enemies forever? No, the Bible says, Paul, a Jew who gets saved in the book of Romans, chapter 10 and 11, that God's not done with them, that they truly were punished because of the destruction of the temple, but he wants, God wants them all to be saved. And he knew this would happen, and he used it for his glory. That as the Israelites rejected Jesus, the Gentiles would start accepting Jesus. And by doing that, the Bible literally says it would make them jelly to watch a bunch of Gentiles who eat lechon and are uncircumcised, loving on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that would draw them to now re-examine the Messiah because the promises are coming to pass. That's how we're supposed to look at it. And so we need to know the difference. The Holocaust is not more of God's punishment or those kinds of things that Jewish people have suffered throughout history. It's not more of God's punishment for this. Jesus was very clear. The punishment would be their temple would be destroyed and they would be scattered. Now God has been gracious to the Jewish people and throughout all of their sufferings he is now bringing them back during these end times as we have talked about as they've been restored to their land because they were exiled from around 70 AD all the way to 1948. Now they're back in their land, and God is blessing them, and more Jews today are coming to Jesus than ever before. So we are to continue to pray for the peace of Israel. That doesn't mean we agree with all their politics as it is today, but we are to pray for them as a people that they'll get saved. So though they are not saved personally, they still have to be born again. That is true, but they are not cursed as a people. They still have the blessing of God on them, and we should pray for them to get saved and to know God, and we shouldn't mistreat them in any way. They got their punishment at 70 AD when they had that destruction there, and I just want to encourage you that whenever you see a Jewish person, apologize for what the church has done in the past because Roman Catholicism for many, many years was anti-Semitic. Some of the first Protestants in Germany were anti-Semitic, and that's what Hitler used With the Christian nation to then turn them to Nazism. So it's been used and abused because of this passage. So I always apologize to them and say, That has never been Christianity. Please forgive us. And if you have more of an interest in repenting as a Christian movement for how the Jews have been treated and you want to speak to them and reach them, read Our Hands Are Stained with Blood. Our Hands Are Stained with Blood by Dr. Michael Brown, a convert now from Judaism to Christianity. He wrote a great book that tells the history, the sad history of anti-Semitism, where it's come from, and now how we can answer it as Christians and see Jewish people come back to Christ. Everybody say, "Shalom." Shalom. Amen. Greet them with a greeting of peace. Shalom. So the Bible says, they go, hey, put the blood on us and our children. They're going to obviously regret that in a few years. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. There could never have been a more understatement than those few words. He had Jesus flogged. Do we have any idea what that was like? I know today we've watched some of the movies, but let's just personally try to understand this for a minute. The Roman soldiers had a whip called the cat of nine tails, one whip that had nine different straps of leather attached to it with balls of lead, broken glass, steel, and he was then flogged 39 times. Every time, it was counting for nine. Every whip had nine lashes that would then dig into his skin. And as they would rip it out, pulling out chunks of his skin, pulling out his tissue, leaving him literally naked and bleeding, that itself is torture. And then they hand him over to be crucified. My friends, if anyone ever says, does God love me? Show them the cross and explain to them he loves them this much. If you ever want to understand suffering in the world, and why is there suffering? There is suffering because of sin, and Jesus suffered more than any of us because of sin when he went to the cross. So you have gone through pain. You have gone through suffering. No one is minimizing that, but the sin of this world costs you more than you could ever imagine. It costs the Son of God being flogged and beaten and crucified by his own creation. That would be like you entering into the cartoon that you created and letting them torture you with the greatest amount of pain just so that they could be saved. Wouldn't it be easier just to delete the program? Wouldn't it be easier just to say, forget all these Simpsons. They're going to hell. Why enter into the cartoon? Why, why lower yourself? And then why allow them to torture you? That is love, my friends. God so loved us. John three sixteen says that he sent his one and only unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is what a good man did for bad people. You're not just kind of bad. You're all the way bad. How many sins do you have to sin to be imperfect? And if the standard is to go to heaven perfection and you're not, how do you get in? Someone had to pay your spot to take your penalty, to pay for what you and I owe from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve to all of human history. And here Jesus not opening his mouth, he now is getting flogged, handed over to be crucified, and yet that's not enough for them. Go to verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium gathered the whole company of soldiers around him, stripped him. And this is where we don't know if Jesus even, even has a loincloth anymore at this point. He might have been stripped naked. And then they put a scarlet robe on him. Just imagine that cloth being laid on your open wounds. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head, pushing it in so that blood is pouring out even from the head. Then they put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They sped on him. They took the staff then out of his hand, struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they rip off the robe. Imagine how much a Band-Aid hurts coming off of a scab that hasn't healed. His whole body is laid open. And yet they put this robe on just to take it off. And they put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And then we'll notice that they make him naked again, at the very least a loincloth on him because they'll start gambling for those clothes. Verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Jesus can't carry this 100-pound beam anymore. Beam. He's been up all night. He's been beaten by the Jewish people. He's now been flogged. He's then been beaten by the soldiers, and they're asking him to, at the most, uh, uh, carry this beam all on his shoulders necessarily they didn't carry the whole cross like we would see in a picture. It was the beam because the the pole aspect of the cross was already there, and they would uh, take it down and attach him to it and then put it back up. So they called this place Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offer Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, which is like a poison. It's there to numb the pain, kind of kill you by poison or just to make you high in some sense. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. So Jesus himself is not even refusing a pain pill. He's not even refusing the easy way out to have the poison do it. He's going to feel every bit of it, in other words. As a matter of fact, the word excruciating, as we would say is the most intense word, you know, childbirth is excruciating. You know, being burned alive is excruciating. Excruciating, the word that we develop to talk about the most amount of pain a person can feel is based in the word of the cross. Excruciating has the word cross in there. So he, he refuses to be numbed. He's going to take the pain for us. Verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Once again, an understatement, a couple words. They flogged him, now they crucify him. Can anyone even imagine this? having the nails put through your arms, put up on a pole for the whole world to see, naked and bleeding, spat upon, crown of thorns. We know what this has looked like in some way from what we've seen in art and movies, but can you imagine the amount of pain? What we believe he's going to die from is choking on his own blood because he's not going to be able to breathe. Blood is going to be filling in his lungs. He's not going to be able to cough it up, and so he's going to suffocate. He is going to die of either a heart attack from pumping out so much blood that's being lost. He's going to die from suffocation, and he's going to be there hanging. And every time he tries to breathe or even to talk, he's going to have to lift up on his feet that are pierced, bringing great pain to his shoulders, his arms, his his nail-pierced hands, and to his body. And so here he's hung, and now they're gambling over his clothes. I mean, this is the lack of respect they have for our Lord and Savior. And yet, once again, Psalm 22 talks about this. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is why the Roman people can torture him and do all this. Because here's a king. He's an enemy now. He's a seditious person. He thinks he's greater than us. We're going to show you what we think of him. Two rebels were also crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. So people are walking by mocking him. In the same way, the chief priests mock him. The teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he wants to save him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. If we were going to look at the surround sound of the gospels, we know one of them eventually gets saved. But Matthew is getting us to the point. And as you'll also notice, Matthew mentions nothing about Mary even when he mentions some women around. Mary's not important at this point. She's not a co-redemptrix. It's not about the suffering she's facing as a mother. It's not about a man according to Matthew and the retelling of the story the Lord is using him to tell. It's not about another man getting saved. All of this to Matthew at this point is not the focus The focus is the Son of God, our Emmanuel, the one born of a virgin at the beginning of his story, is tortured and is hanging on a cross, and everybody is mocking him. He is alone. And then I think to myself about all the times we've mocked him, taken his name in vain. When we stub our toe, why do we say Jesus Christ, the greatest name known to men? Why don't we say Hitler? Why is it when we curse, we say his name? We are sharing in the same mocking of Christ when we take his name in vain. Honor the name of Jesus Christ. And even some of these Christians, comedians, I want to warn you with, whether it's, you know, Medea with Tyler Perry or Kev on stage or some of these other guys, be careful with how they use the name of Jesus. Would you say that joke about Jesus at the foot of the cross? If you wouldn't say it at the foot of the cross to our dear Lord and Savior, why say it now? That's what the name means to me. Yahweh says, Yeshua, God is saving us. Why would I ever take that name out of context? They mock him. They ridicule him. And then this is the same kind of uh, anger towards sin that raises up in my heart when I see them taunting him to save himself. Then they'll believe. Come off the cross, then I'll believe. Here is this ant speaking to its creator. Do this, and then I'll believe. And that's what every fool sounds like today. Do this, God, and then I'll believe. Do this, God, and then I'll believe. The greatest evidence for God and his love for you is that cross. And if you don't believe, you deserve hell, you wicked sinner. Listen to me, if you can look at the cross and not see a God who has proven his love to you beyond what Muhammad, beyond what any guru has done, beyond what any of these false prophets have done, if you cannot look at the cross and say, there is the Son of God, you deserve hell, you wicked, vile sinner. We do not have the right to stand at the foot of the cross and now ask him to be our jester, our clown. Tap, dance for me, and then I'll believe you. We don't have that right. There is the sign of God's love. Take it or leave it. That's all you get, you sinner. That's all we get in this wicked world is a God who loved us enough to die for us. He's not here to write your name in the stars, give you two more dreams, make you have goosebumps, have somebody call you up at the right time to get you to church. Though God may do that, don't you ever look at it like he owes that to you. Everything you deserve is in hellfire, and he's taking it for you, and he's taking it for me. How dare we say, do this, and then I'll believe. I believe. Jesus, because you did for me what no one has ever done for me. You died for me. On that cross, you are taking Joe's rebellion towards his parents. Jesus, you're taking my perversion. You're taking my anger and my sin of pride and boasting and of greed and of all the filthy, vile things I did, that is enough evidence for me that you loved me. You could have came, the Bible says, he could have came and sent 60,000 angels to defend him. He could have destroyed the planet, and yet he's saving us and giving all sinners, all rebels a chance to be saved. That's why I'm so thankful that the other gospel writer Talks about the thief who starts to feel convicted because as they're mocking Jesus, he's not doing anything in retaliation. And then that man looks at him and he begins to see the love of his eyes and his heart. And he says to his friend, we deserve to be here. But I can tell he doesn't deserve to be here. And then he looks at him and he says, King, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus says, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Aren't you so happy that even while Jesus is dying and suffering, that he still cares for us in such a special way that he uses the very words that cause him pain to move his body on that cross to save a man sitting next to him or crucified next to him. The Bible then says from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is Psalm chapter 22. That's how it starts with this real despair. And then it talks about the clothes being gambled, the person being pierced. And then it turns into a praise and a a wonderful song of redemption at the end. And so oftentimes we read this and we think Jesus is simply just saying, all I sense is darkness, all I know is pain. I'm all alone and I don't know if God loves me or not. But we have to be honest to the text and go back and read the whole portion In other words, what Jesus is doing here is starting the words of amazing grace. Just like in our culture, if I started saying amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you would know all the rest of it. And so he couldn't quote the whole psalm. He's he's on the cross, obviously. So he quotes the first part, which is the reality. He is being forsaken in the sense by the darkness coming, and he's feeling the, the wrath of God his Father and all of that. But he knows that he's not alone that God is with him and that God is pleased with his sacrifice and that what he is doing is righteous and good. And so even though at times we feel forsaken by God, we can trust him that he is with us. And so we know that there is no separation between the Son of God and the Father and the Holy Spirit. But what there is a separation of is the sin upon him is separating him from the peace that he had once felt because now he's taking upon us the sin and feeling the weight Of sin. He doesn't himself sin. Let's be very clear about that. But he becomes sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As a matter of fact, it might be good to pause here. If you want to know all what's going on here theologically this week in light of what we've read here today, read the book of Romans and read the book of Hebrews. The two greatest books that tie together the entire theology of what's happening here in one chapter. He's becoming sin in exchange for us to become righteous. He's becoming cursed so that we might become blessed. He is becoming stricken and rejected so that we might be brought in and healed. He is becoming sorrowful that we might become joyful. Does everybody see that? Somebody say, Sunday's coming. Amen. It might be Christmas time, but it's Easter every day. Amen. It's every day is Easter with Jesus, resurrection life. So he cries out this psalm. And you can just see how far away the Jews are from even understanding what's going on. When some of them standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah because Elijah sounds like Eli. You might not have heard the rest of the word. You might have thought he was calling out Elijah, but he's not calling on anybody but God. He's not calling on a saint, in other words. Sometimes Catholics even try to use this and say, see, the Jewish people didn't have a problem with him calling on saints. First of all, I don't care what the Jews believe. What was Jesus actually doing? I don't want to know what the backslidden Jew was thinking. I want to know what Jesus actually said. He didn't say Elijah. That's the point. So the Roman Catholic literally takes the Scripture out of context exactly like the Jews took it out of context and confused this with saying, calling on saints. Just because the Jews thought that was acceptable in their time to call out to somebody, they also thought that it was acceptable to have reincarnation beliefs. He was not calling on Elijah. He was calling on God, which is the first part of Elijah's name. Immediately. One of them ran to him and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Once again, that's part of Psalm 69, this being offered drink, and he doesn't. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And if you want to look at the last words of Jesus, you can read those now online and put all the gospels together. But here it just simply says he cries out, and then he gives up his spirit. You see, no one, everybody get this, no one took his life. He laid it down. Everybody get it? Matthew, it's not John. John starts us right up from the beginning. He's God. He's coming in the flesh. He's dying for our sins. That's John 1. That's John 3, etc. Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time on that, but he wants to make sure that he's not just a good man dying for a good cause. He doesn't want you to think this is Braveheart getting caught, and now he has to die, or this is one of those heroes of our movies or, or history. No, this is a person giving up his spirit. If he did not want to die, he never would have died. But since he did not come as Superman, he came as a man. He allowed his body to go to the point of death, and then he gave up his spirit. And he said, I've done it. And we know in the other gospels, what does he say? It is finished. And to your hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is one of the places where people really get to show their stupidity and if they want to mock the Bible. I've heard people call this, this is the zombie apocalypse of Matthew. Dead people start coming out of graves and start talking to their friends. There's a few things about this. Please stay on the text, sir. There's a few things about this that we don't understand. Just show the whole text. Thank you. Number one, they're not partially dead, partially alive. They're fully resurrected. A zombie is not a fully resurrected person. They're not the same thing. I don't know why people continue to act out of ignorance. Just read the story. It is not a zombie apocalypse. Number two, what people begin to ask is, should we take this serious? Why doesn't any other Jewish historian or Roman historian at this time talk about the phenomenon of a bunch of dead people coming out of the graves after an earthquake and then meeting with their family? Number one, it wasn't for them, and this wasn't a proof or a sign to anybody. This was God showing his power on display So it wasn't supposed to be like, here he's the son of God. Look at this dead person. He's going to come talk to you. That wasn't the purpose. Even Jesus at his resurrection didn't go to Pilate and go, hi, Pilate. He remained in secret with his disciples, and then he ascended to heaven before before them. The Bible is never written as myth. It's not meant to be taken as myth. It's not myth. If you don't want to believe it or someone doesn't want to believe it, that's fine. Don't put it in the category of myth. Myth does not have what the Bible has. Bible has accurate information, historical data, and it's not here to prove anything to you. The miracle is that when God hit that grave, dead bodies had to get up. Are you listening to me? When the Son of God touched a grave, when his body went into the underworld, it shook some things up and people had to pop out fully whole, fully alive. Our best understanding of that is probably people who died like Lazarus just a few days or weeks ago. It wasn't like somebody came out with skeletons. It wasn't like somebody came out weird. It was probably somebody who had died within the last three to ten days, and it was a few of them, and they get up, and they start walking around to show the power of God. The temple curtain splitting in two was to now show that God has made the human soul his temple and that the Jewish religion, the covenant, has been fulfilled, and the new covenant has come. Between the place of the holy place and the most holy place, the most holy place had the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was, was that temple veil. This splits. Now you have to ask yourself a question. Do I believe that? Well, if you believe in God sending his son, doing miracles, walking on water up until this point, why not believe that? I believe that based on the testimony of those who are writing it because Jesus up until this point has given me no reason to doubt him. So he splits the temple veil. People raised from the dead because, once again, God the Son does not stop existing at death, no more than you stop existing when your body dies. How many believe your spirit lives after your body? Yeah. Sometimes people try to be real smart-alecky, and they go, well, what happened when God died? How can you kill God who was in heaven? Well, first of all, we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons. They have been there all throughout the book of Matthew but we also believe that when we die, like the son died, his body died, but his spirit went to the grave, or what we call Sheol, and he went there, preached to the sinners, and said, what you rejected by shadow, in part, you rejected me, because I was the one speaking to them, so he condemned them, the Bible says, this is Peter, 1 Peter in Ephesians, and then also he goes to the righteous who had been waiting to be born again because the penalty of sin had not been yet given, he said, what you believed in shadows is now coming and true what you believed when you heard the prophets and you believed in the sacrifices is now here come with me into heaven and he leads them into heaven the Bible teaches verse 54 it says when the saturian and those with him were who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened they were terrified and exclaimed surely he was the son of God this is uh, true in church history that guards got saved that day Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the Zebedee sons. Notice uh, notice Matthew does not even mention the Mary of Jesus. Just like Jesus was a popular name at that time, so was Mary. Some things have not changed. Jesus and Maria still popular names. Can I get an amen from my hente? There's a lot of Marys up in there, a lot of Marias, okay? Just like there's like Jesus, what Jesus? Elote Jesus, this Jesus, what Jesus we're talking about, right? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Christ. Once again, not myth. We know where he's buried. So this idea like, oh, maybe dogs just ate his body because the Romans would toss their uh, bodies of the victims to the the dogs and let them eat them. No, it's very specific. A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph had become a disciple. He asked for the body. Why is this important? The gospel is only being written 20 or 30 years after the fact. We can go find. Was there a Joseph of Arimathea here? How come no one ever disproves these facts? There's nothing in history where anybody ever says, well, when we went to Jerusalem, we couldn't find Arimathea, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. We couldn't find this person. We couldn't find that situation. No, these were people named. You're supposed to know this was a real man that had a real grave, and it's empty. Now in the Holy Land, they, they claim about two or three of these caves are those tombs. I don't know. Just be careful on who you give your money to on those tours. But somewhere around there is where this happens. But they would have known within 30 years. How many believe that? How many know within 30, How many of you are at least 30 years, you know what happened in life? If there was nobody ever here named Joseph of Miramathia, if there was never this or that, you could easily check on that. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of a rock. So that's where we get the idea of it being in a cave. It's cut out of a rock. It says he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. So he's putting the stone there to make sure that it can be protected. Now, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of tune. So we learn that the women have courage. And as a matter of fact, we're going to learn that the women are the first ones to believe the resurrection. That would not be used to tell a myth if you wanted to make a lie in that culture. Women didn't have the same rights or their testimony didn't bear the same weight. Why not have Peter, the hero, the guy who walked on water, be the one who believes? No, at this point, heroes uh, are the women and the disciples are the Oompa Loompas. The disciples have betrayed him. One ran away naked. The other one killed himself. The other one has betrayed him three times, even to a little girl, and doesn't even believe when the women tell him. And yet, the Bible says in historical, our, our historical account, Book of Acts, that Peter's the first preacher. What happened from the doubting Peter, the Peter who had betrayed to, to the little girl, the Peter who went back to fishing, now to him being the greatest preacher? He met Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Savior. So props to the women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite of the tomb. Verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Now, the reason why I highlight preparation days, because we go into the three nights and three days. He had prophesied that. And sometimes people try to say, well, Friday to Sunday, that's not three nights and three days. We've explained that before when he talked about the sign of Jonah. It's hyperbole. It's a portion of a day can count also for the full day. That's what he died, why he died on a Friday, rose on a Sunday. But there's also Christian beliefs that he died and was crucified on an early Thursday and rose on a Sunday to give you exactly three days and three nights. But I happen to believe that it was hyperbole, and I've shown you that in other lessons. Check that out if you want to know why. It's from Friday to Sunday, and yet He said three days and three nights, so they go there to make sure uh, they don't get deceived. The the, priests want to go to Pilate and say, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Now notice this. They know the three days is same thing like we would. They want to have it ready by Sunday because that would have counted as the third day. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come, steal the body, and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone, posting the guard. That meant if you, if you would have broke the Roman seal, you would have suffered a death penalty. You couldn't break this seal. Let's keep going. Verse 67. Oh, that's where we end. There is no verse 67. It's chapter 28. I'm so excited. I want to keep reading. We're going to leave you on a cliff note. Jesus is in the tomb. I know. I know, Jesus is in the tomb. How could we do that? Why didn't I think of that before? Oh, let's all stand up and give it up for Jesus. We know what happens. Come on, we know. Amen. We thank you, Lord. Let's have the band and altar workers come, please. So why did they go through all this trouble to make sure it was secure so that there wouldn't be a rumor that he was stolen, but then they say he raised from the dead? What benefit would the disciples get from, from telling a story based on a lie. What would they get from that? Think about it at this time, my friends. Jesus had been betrayed by both Jew and Gentile, treated bad. Who are they going to win favors with by now saying the one that was betrayed basically by all humanity is actually raised from the dead. We saw him and we're going to die for him now too. What benefit would they get if they knew that was a lie? We know that people die for things they believe all the time. So let's say a Muslim, he believes he goes to paradise when he goes on a plane and flies it into a building and dies as a martyr. But we know that's not true. But he believes it, doesn't he? How many know people can believe lies? But how many know you don't die for something you know is a lie? What would you have to gain from that? Maybe a criminal's trying to lie to get free, but these men were free. Why would they now lie and say he was raised from the dead? Why would they break a seal from the Roman government? The Roman government could kill them for breaking the seal and kill them for believing in a king that they had already crucified. I mean, there's 101 reasons not to tell a lie. But what happens between this day and the next days that follow. What happens? A real resurrection. Matthew is even going to tell us that some are still doubting even as they're seeing him. In other words, there's never enough proof to make you believe Jesus is Jesus. You have to still apply faith. Even Thomas had to apply faith after he touched Jesus because it says even some didn't even believe after they saw him. So what do we gather from this? When we look at the story of the cross, the theology, the the story that goes beyond just our Savior dying that day is that he won for us salvation and we now are to carry our cross with him to be crucified to our sin and live new life with him. So the question is, have you been crucified with Christ? Have I been crucified with Christ? Is the life that we're now living, a life unto Jesus, considering our old life dead? That's how we're supposed to take the crucifixion and apply it today. And say, Jesus is Lord. I believe he died for me so I can live for him. That I can crucify my flesh and live by the spirit. That I might say, not my will, but his will be done. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. Would you take a few moments and thank the Father for the cross? Come on, just thank the Father for sending his son. And then thank Jesus for coming. And thank the Holy Spirit who is here to make it real in our hearts so that's not just a story. A few moments right now. Thank you, Father, for sending the son. Thank you, Father. For giving us your best thank you Jesus thank you Jesus for coming and willingly suffering for us thank you Holy Spirit for making us new today that when we believe there's a real transformation whoever believes Jesus is Lord that Jesus is King just confess that right now Jesus your Lord of my life Jesus I believe you died on the cross you were buried and you rose again for the glory of God and my salvation. You died so that I might live. Hallelujah. You died so that I might live. Come on, say that out today. You died. Woo. Come on, thank him, thank him. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live for Jesus who today wants to live for Jesus if you need someone to pray with you before we dismiss even come right now if you want to accept Jesus or come back if you've been living as a backslider or need help come on live for Jesus come from your seats we'll pray with you Jesus is Lord he died so that I might live if you need to get free from sin addiction Come on up. Let's pray for you today. If you're going through the pain of life, if you feel self-hatred, if you feel depressed, come on up. Let's pray for you to get set free.